This week we've got an interview with notable and controversial biologist Rupert Sheldrake on a special episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, here we are in a brand new gear, and it turns out that my podcast microphone still works. Hello, everyone. I am Mike McCarg, the host of Ask Science Mike, and we are coming back from a bit of a break over the holidays and uh, and trauma therapy and, and all kinds of things. Uh, friends, it is so good to talk with you again, and uh, from this week forward, uh, we'll, we'll have regular episodes coming again. Patrons, watch out. We'll start the polls up again. Uh, in the next week or two, uh, and, and get back to more of our normal format for the program. I wanted to give you an update kind of on what's going on with Science Mike. Um, first thing, I am in the final stretch of working on my second book, which is called You Wondrous You, Why You're a Miracle and a Pain in Your Ass. And it's going to be, I hope, a wonderful book, but I'm in that terrible stage where it's a slog. I am in my office for eight or ten hours a day, writing and writing, and every day I walk out and I feel like the book is no closer to being finished. I think there's parts of it that I love and parts of it that my uh, good friend and editor Derek Reed is going to really, really, really have to uh, give me extensive notes on. So um, that's, that's one reason I haven't been doing the podcast is writing the book. The other thing, if you listen to my Christmas show, if you could call it that, uh, is that I've been dealing with um, just some mental health stuff. Honestly, uh, I want to talk about it unselfconsciously because there shouldn't be any stigma around people uh, seeking to improve their mental health and, and deal with changes in life. And that that is what has been happening to me. Uh, several factors have kind of converged. One is the, you know, explosive growth of the Liturgist podcast and Ask Science Mike over the last two years. Uh, that is wonderful. I'm so excited to talk to all of you. Uh, if you follow my work, you know that I have a genuine affection and affinity for all of you. Uh, but the scale of uh, the communication I received from the public started to take a toll on me. Because I'm a very sensitive person. I think part of uh, why this relationship we have in a podcast together works is because I'm a very sensitive and empathetic person. And I I haven't learned how to modulate that sensitivity and that empathy uh, that makes me take your questions so seriously. Uh, I haven't learned how to separate that from dealing with, uh, you know, constructive critique from the public or even worse you know actual trolling and that's kind of run into um some other things in my life where i've i've become aware that uh you know i have some some trauma that i needed to process childhood trauma and uh i'll talk more about that later i think it's probably too raw right now for me to go into but the, the, the combination of those things was leading me to have really frequent panic attacks and uh, would have difficulty, you know, working on the podcasts and um, 
doing basic day-to-day tasks. I was, you know, we had a, a retreat uh, called Ken, which I'll talk to you about in just a second. And I had a really severe panic attack during an exercise at one of those. And uh, under the advice of my friend and colleague, Hillary McBride, I went, I started seeing a, a trauma therapist. And honestly, it's helping. Finally, it is helping. I feel a lot better. I hope you can hear in my voice kind of a renewed enthusiasm uh, to be talking with you. And that's that's where the show's been. So I'm, I'm sorry uh, that we've been off the air now for a couple of months and inconsistent before that. Uh, but I'm back. I can't promise it's going to be an every single week uh, thing again. But I, I feel confident saying we'll get two a month going for the foreseeable future, the next couple of months while my travel schedule is heavy and while I am working on finishing book two. Uh, so that'll be great. But then um, then we'll we'll start moving back towards a weekly format. And I've got all kinds of ideas I want to do a lot more interviews and conversations on Ask Science Mike. You know, I get kind of lonely doing this podcast because I love that you send me your questions and I get to interact with your questions. I don't love that as I respond to your question, it's just me talking into this microphone by myself. I just, I find that really lonely. Uh, So I've got some ideas for that. You'll see this episode. It won't just be me. Uh, before we get to the meat of today's show, though, I do want to, as always, let you know a few opportunities that we have to be together in the coming days and weeks, okay? So the first thing is uh, going to be February 1st and 2nd in Chapel Hill, North Carolina for the Cosmic Campfire. Now, that's actually something we're going to unpack in this episode Uh, The interview I have coming up with Rupert Sheldrake is actually from the Cosmic Campfire online book club that we did, uh, and I think is very representative of the kinds of conversations that are going to be at the Cosmic Campfire. Uh, It's it's me and it's Mike Morrell from uh, Rewilder Podcast, and he also uh, worked on The Divine Dance with Richard Rohr. And it's Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity, so kind of a triple podcast lineup. We're going to be your hosts, but then we've got some really great uh, scientists and theologians lined up to come to that event and talk about really deep and significant weighty topics, cosmic origins, deep ecology, human evolution, real transformation. Plus, we're going to drink beer together. We're literally going to cook s'mores around a campfire. Uh, I'm so excited about this event, and I would simply love to be with you in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, February 1st and 2nd. You can learn more by going to CosmicCampfire.party. It's got to be the event I'm most looking forward to uh, in the first part of the year, just just because of the the lineup. Although that's tough to say because uh, another event coming up uh, is really, really exciting. And that's Theoed in Atlanta. Now, what is Theoed? Well, that's put on by the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And it's a speaker series that brings together leading thinkers in the church and the academy that seek to spark conversations about God, religion, and the power of faith to shape lives and communities. Okay, well, that's great. It's kind of TED-style format, 20-minute talks. But uh, coming up uh, when I'm at Theoed, 
which I will be there um, on February 10th, um, is an incredible lineup of people I want to see. Diana Butler Bass, uh, author of, of Grounded, uh, one, one of my favorite books the last couple of years. Uh, Peter Inns, who you know, is like my jam, and Patrick Reyes. So um, that's a really killer line of people you can see all in one day in Atlanta. Uh, I think the room only seats like 400 people. So if you're interested, uh, definitely definitely grab your ticket. Uh, I don't want to run out and then not see you. Um, and then uh, we're doing another Ken actually this weekend, Ken Men, our men's retreat. That's all about embodiment and confronting toxic masculinity. And that one sold out like in no time. So we've got a handful, and I mean literally a handful of tickets left for Ken Men in Ohio, May 24th through 26th. Um, and uh, there's just a few tickets left. Again, that's hosted by me, Michael Gunger, and Hillary McBride. And it's an embodiment retreat designed to confront toxic masculinity. And it's intense. I'm not going to lie. That is one intense weekend, but uh, at the end of it, it is quite beautiful, and I hope will lead to deeper relationships among men um, and a healthier society with healthier people in it. So uh, all of those, if you go to com, click on the events button, you'll get links to any of those events that you're interested in. Back to the cosmic campfire. So uh, this is a thing that at, uh, Mike Morell and Trip Fuller and I kind of just schemed up. We all like each other. We like talking. We like shooting the shit with each other. And um, we feel like all of our audiences have kind of a a common weirdness. And so we had this idea to do the Cosmic Campfire, which was going to be an event, and then we just couldn't get the logistics worked out. So we did this online uh, book club instead that was super fun. And now it's becoming an event again. And as part of the online book club, Mike Morell and I had a conversation with Rupert Sheldrake, who I knew, whose work I was familiar with. He's a biologist who is kind of controversial. Um, and I don't know if I, like, uh, agree who I'm with here. Like, <laughs> I don't. I think there's good reasons that he's controversial, uh, but I also think some of his points uh, critiquing mainstream science are interesting. Um, and I don't really arrive at a conclusion in this conversation at all. Um, so, so what'll follow here will be an interview that Mike and I did with Rupert Sheldrake. If you aren't familiar, uh, gosh, it's hard to even talk about. Uh, <laughs> Like what he's written twelve books. He's authored eighty-five scientific papers. He was listed among the top one hundred global thought leaders for two thousand thirteen by the Duttweiler Institute in Switzerland. Um, he was a fellow of Clare College and Cambridge University. All that stuff, super legit, vast body of work. He lives in London, and how I became familiar with him was a, a concept of morphic resonance, the idea that life produced a physical field, which is both fascinating and uh, makes me think it might be woo. <laughs> uh, so 
I just wanted to give you this conversation this week and let you hear it because I think this kind of open-ended, we don't end at resolution conversation is typical of what will be happening at the Cosmic Campfire uh, in in Chapel Hill. And I just thought it was a really interesting conversation. I've listened back to it a couple of times and caught things I didn't catch the first time. And uh, I just thought this would be a great, great conversation for all of you to hear. Uh, so, without further ado, I'll move into the conversation and when it's over, that'll be the end of this episode, and I will talk to you next week. Welcome. So, so everyone, uh, this is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. If you are not familiar with with him, he is a uh, an English author. He's a researcher into panpsychism. He's developed the field of morphic resonance within biology. And he's worked as a biochemist and cell biologist at Cambridge in the 60s and 70s. And he was a plant physiologist at the International Crop Research Institute for Semi-Arid Tropics in India until 1978. If you've read his, um, his essay in How I Found God and Everyone and Everywhere, you'll know that he has been on an incredible journey through, um, I would say, sort of a, a default uh, dead materialist view of the world to a re-enchantment vis-a-vis India, to a recovery of his own Anglican Christian tradition. And he's had a lot of interesting stops on the way. So we are really happy to have you here. I, I really enjoyed your interview with our collaborator in this group, Trip Fuller. And mm-hmm. uh, I'd, I'd love to um, kind of hit the ground running from there. So. Yeah. And and Rupert, for those of you who, uh, for those here who maybe aren't as familiar with your story, could you share a little slice of of who you are and and how you got to be who you are today? Well, I have to keep it brief, of course. But um, yes, um, I studied biology because I love plants and animals. Uh, I did so as a child. I was raised in a fairly conventional way, a Methodist family, an Anglican boarding school. Um, high church Anglican boarding school. Um, But as part of my scientific education, I got the message from my science teachers that science equals atheism and religion sort of out of date and being superseded by science. And I wanted to be a scientist. And that's a fairly normal thing to happen in England as part of a scientific education. Um, So I became a rather unthinking atheist. and an enthusiast for science. But my enthusiasm for science began to uh, get, it was dimmed when I realized how this reductionist, uh, mechanistic view of nature gives such a very poor view of living organisms that just didn't work very well for the kind of biology I was interested in, namely living animals and plants. It was mainly about dead animals and plants cut up into little bits. and then reduced to molecules. Um, So I began to doubt that, and um, by the time I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, I was really quite disenchanted with mechanistic science. Um, I then studied history and philosophy of science at Harvard, Um, and Kuhn's book on paradigms, the structure of scientific revolutions had just appeared. Um, And I realized the mechanistic theory in biology was just a paradigm. It wasn't the truth, which is what I believed before, that it was an inevitable truth. Um, that made me realize things could change. And I started looking for more holistic ways of doing science. And 
That led, I was working on developmental biology in Cambridge, um, and that led to the idea of morphic resonance after some seven, eight, nine, ten years of reflection and research. Um, I then went to India to work in an agriculture institute because I didn't feel ready to publish this radical idea, and I realized as soon as I published it, it would probably lead to uh, career difficulties in within science. So I wanted to be really sure of my ground. And so I worked in a different field, agriculture, trying to do something useful. And I think we did do something useful um, until I was ready to write uh, about morphic resonance. And I wrote my first book, uh, A New Science of Life, uh, living in the ashram of Father Bede Griffiths in Tamil Nadu in South India, a Christian ashram. He was a Benedictine monk. Um, and for me, this was a wonderfully integrative experience because when I was in India to start with, I was into Hindu meditation and yoga. I went to ashrams, Hindu ashrams, temples, and so forth. Then I had a Sufi teacher. And I finally found myself drawn back to a Christian path um, I was confirmed in the Church of South India, which is an ecumenical church of Methodists and Anglicans. Um, uh, I lived in a Catholic ashram. And when I got back to England, I, I was sort of very excited to rediscover the, Engli the um, Anglican and the Christian tradition in Europe and you know, thrilled to visit great cathedrals and see them as sacred places sort of re-inspired by the Anglican choral music tradition, um, uh, really um, finding it really helpful to um, make, make it a practice to be a regular churchgoer, which I do now. I go every Sunday wherever I am, which means that I get to see a wide range of different churches um, and observing the festivals and you know, many of the things I learned from the Hindu tradition, I found were also there in the Anglican tradition, including what for me is the most important part of all the mystical tradition. Okay, so you have said a lot just now. I want to, uh, to back us up just a tad. For those, um, to go back to your research for a moment, for those who are unfamiliar, which I think might safely assume most of us, what are morphogenetic fields and, and what is your idea of morphic resonance? Morphogenetic fields were proposed first in the 1920s to try and explain how organisms develop. If you think about an embryo as it develops, the DNA in all the cells is the same, and the proteins and, and so on are, are, are very similar. For example, in your arms and your legs, the DNA is the same, the muscle proteins are the same, the bone chemistry is the same, yet they have different shapes. Um, how come they have different shapes? And in the plant, um, you know, all the cells have the same DNA, the same genes, and yet some of them become petals, some become sepals, some become leaves, stems, roots. How come they're different? And why does each plant have different kind of shape? Um, these are problems that biology still hasn't solved. Uh, the standard assumption is that by knowing about the genes and the proteins they code for, somehow all this will eventually be explained in a way that's not quite clear. Um, I don't think that will ever work. It's like trying to explain the architecture of a building, the shape of a a building, say a cathedral, by understanding the chemistry of stone and cement and, and mortar and so on. Uh, um, 
it, you need to have an overall plan as well as knowing about the material components. And the idea in the 1920s was that the animals and plants have a, an invisible form-shaping field called the morphogenetic field. Morpho means form. Gene genetic comes from genesis, which means coming into being. Uh, are fields that shape the coming into being of form, like an invisible mold. Um, fields in science are extended regions in space, like a magnetic field is in a magnet and around it. Uh, the gravitational field of the Earth is in the Earth, but stretches far beyond it, invisibly. Uh, the field of your cell phone is inside the cell phone, the electromagnetic activity, but it also stretches invisibly uh, for a long distance away from beyond the cell phone. And so the idea is that there are invisible fields within and around living organisms that shape them, morphogenetic fields. Um, so that idea already existed, um, but nobody knew what they were or how they were inherited, because um, people used to think all inheritance is in the genes. And there's no way you could put a field like that in a gene. It's like saying you could put an architectural plan in a brick or in a stone building block of a cathedral. Um, it's not that kind of thing. Um, so when I came up with the idea of morphic resonance, this provided a, a possible explanation for the inheritance of these fields. Morphic resonance is the influence of similar patterns of activity across space and time from the past to the present. So what it means is that each species tunes into a kind of collective memory. Every giraffe, baby giraffe or giraffe embryo, tunes into the uh, morphogenetic fields of all previous giraffes. So those shape its form as a kind of memory of form. And the same goes for instincts and behavior. Similar fields organize the activity of the brain. And so a baby giraffe uh, tunes into the behavioral habits of the giraffe species, and that underlies its instincts. So we too have a collective memory on this view, which is similar to Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. And this theory makes predictions, testable predictions. If you train rats to learn a new trick in London, then rats in New York and San Francisco and Melbourne, Australia, should all be able to learn it quicker just because the rats have learned it here. And surprisingly, there's already evidence that that happens. So it's a theory of memory in nature. And in its most general sense, it says that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. And uh, the, uh, each individual draws on a collective memory and in turn contributes to it. So the normal Western view is that nature has no memory that if memories exist, they have to be stored in special physical spatial structures like hard drives or vinyl records or something. Um, I'm suggesting instead that there's a built-in memory in all nature. This is not unlike the Hindu and Buddhist view, uh, which says there's a kind of memory in nature. Um, so in the Eastern traditions, um, it's taken for granted this kind of memory in nature. In, in the West, it's deeply shocking, both to scientists and indeed to most Christians as well, because they just haven't thought that way. It's not been part of the Western way of thinking. But in an evolutionary universe, it makes much better sense of things. 
it gives us the idea of the whole universe being like an organism that's developing and evolving and forming new habits. And instead of thinking of the so-called laws of nature as being like a cosmic Napoleonic code that we're all there at the moment of the Big Bang, uh, we can have habits that evolve along with nature. Wow. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm sure that uh, my other Mike here has some really nerdy science questions, and I, I want him to ask them. But the, the question that I have coming up is, how is this uh, similar to or distinct from the idea that uh, Richard Dawkins has advocated and advanced the idea of, of the meme or memetics? Well, the meme is a unit of cultural transmission. So it's, uh, it's like, uh, as he defines it, it's like a tune or an idea or a, a fashion in clothes or, or um, a phrase or something like that. It's only about cultural transmission. He thinks that all other forms of inheritance are in genes. So I'm saying that organisms inherit three kinds of inheritance, in fact. Then genes enable organisms to make the right proteins. We know that's what genes do. But they don't code for the shape of your face or the instincts of a spider being able to spin a web without learning. Um, uh, those are inherited, all that's inherited by morphic resonance. But then in the cultural realm, it, morphic resonance would enable you to learn things quicker that other people have already learned. So in that, in that area, it's similar to the idea of the meme. Um, but Dawkins... Uh, is very opposed to the idea of morphic resonance. Um, uh, he thinks memes can be explained simply in terms of people reading things or seeing them online and so on. And obviously, that's part of the cultural transmission, but I'm suggesting there's more to it than that. I'm a uh, college dropout and total uneducated person. So if, if any of my questions uh, seem uninformed, they are. Uh, so understand I'm even open to correction in the way questions are phrased or function. Uh, but I've, I, I've actually been familiar with your work for some time. Uh, I lost my faith a number of years ago and then had a mystical experience. Um, and I actually found a lot of resonance in your story as laid out in this book. Uh, but I actually saw, uh, saw you on a program called Through the Wormhole. Oh, yes. Uh, the first time I, was, I encountered your work. And I was blown away with the concept of morphic fields and morphic resonance. Um, really, 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 really moved. And then I decided to learn more about it and encountered just the, the outrage of the scientific community and, and many parts of the scientific community to your ideas and theories. And I was curious, from your perspective, why say, um, the multiverse model or string theory, uh, which are speculative, get such open discussion in the scientific community, whereas morphic resonance tends to be, I actually think I heard it described once as scientific heresy, which is a very, very strong wording and uh, uniquely hysterical from my perspective. What, where do you think that where the deep discomfort comes here uh, when physics, we can talk about, you know, multiverses mm. without anyone laughing at us. Well, I think it comes from the fact that since the 19th century, science has been dominated by uh, mechanistic materialism as its dominant theoretical base. And 
mechanistic materialism says that minds are nothing but brains, um, uh, uh, the activity of brains, and that the whole of nature is made up of unconscious matter governed by physical laws um, with, no, uh, with no purpose anywhere. Now, morphic resonance upsets that worldview by, first of all, saying there's memory. Secondly, by saying that all organisms are organized by morphic fields, which are rather mind-like in their nature, they're purposive, they shape things holistically. Um, so that goes against the uh, general mechanistic materialism. Morphic resonance also allows for um, transmission of information at a distance, and in social groups allows for phenomena like telepathy. And psychic phenomena are a big taboo within mechanistic materialist science. You know, the reason they're a taboo is because if the mind is nothing but the activity of your brain, your thinking is insulated in the privacy of your skull. And if I think of somebody, uh, I shouldn't be able to influence them hundreds of miles away just by thinking about them or by my intentions. But telepathy shows that that happens. If I think of calling you you might start thinking about me, even though you're thousands of miles away. And then if I, when I do call you, you may say, oh, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. But this is a very common form of telepathy in the modern world in connection with phone calls. Yet institutional science based on materialism is based on a culture of denial, saying that is impossible, can't happen. Anyone who believes it happens is stupid or uneducated or uninformed. I'm saying this is normal, natural, not paranormal, not supernatural. Um, so this upsets a lot of dogmatic materialists. One reason that the multiverse appeals to them is because they imagine a, that it helps them to get rid of God. Um, many of them are deeply committed to an atheist worldview. Uh, some of them are militant atheists, like Richard Dawkins or Lawrence Krauss. Um, <coughs> And the reason they, um, they like the multiverse is um, it fits in with their prejudices rather than goes against them. You see, they, they think that all the laws of nature were fixed at the moment of the Big Bang. That's a conventional scientific assumption. As I just said, I don't think it's a necessary assumption at all. I think they evolved. There's no reason to assume that. I think they're more like regular. The idea of laws of nature is based on the metaphor of human laws. And human laws do, in fact, evolve. The laws of the U.S. today are very different from the U.S. 200 years ago. And go back a 1,000 years, there wasn't a constitution in the U.S. There were tribal customs, and those evolved too. Um, so I, if we really take that metaphor seriously, there's no reason to assume it was all fixed at the beginning. However, if it's all fixed at the beginning, which is what they believe, it was fixed in such a way that out of all the very millions of possible sets of laws and constants, the right ones were there to give rise to a universe in which we could exist. They were fine-tuned, it seems, to give, make it possible for humans. So then that, that then led to a kind of resurgence of neo-deism, where people would say, oh, well, if all the laws are fixed, and they're fixed exactly right so that we exist, then it proves there must be some supreme designer who's fine-tuning all these laws, a kind of god of the scientific laws. So to get rid of that kind of god, which is not the kind of god that Christians or anyone else actually worships, but it's the kind of, a kind of intellectual conception of a designer god, 
Um, to get rid of that kind of God, they then say, well, there must be billions, trillions, quadrillions of universes, all with different laws and constants. And the only one we can actually experience is the one that's suitable for us. But that's just like chance that we, we happen to be in just one of these many other ones, and they all actually exist. So there's no need for God. You, as I point out to some of the believers in that, you know, the principle of Occam's razor is that you should have the most economical hypothesis. And William of Occam in the Middle Ages said, you shouldn't multiply entities unnecessarily. Well, proliferating universes told us quadrillions of unobserved universes is the ultimate violation of Occam's razor. Um, I think it's absurd, but like you, I find it baffling. This is passes without comment almost, because it fits the materialist prejudice. The thing is, they haven't really even thought it through, because if they do think it through, as some philosophers have pointed out, um, an infinite God could be the God of an infinite number of universes. So they don't even get rid of God. They've just proliferated universes unnecessarily. I think it's much more scientific, much less uh, speculative to acknowledge that things like telepathy, which the great majority of the population have actually experienced, uh, do in fact exist. There's already good scientific evidence for them. So... Um, we have here a clash of worldviews, and people who are committed to dogmatic atheism and materialism um, are prepared to tolerate you know, 95% of the universe being completely unobserved and unexplored, you know, dark matter and dark energy about which we know nothing. They believe they constitute 95% of reality. Um, uh, unobserved universes extra dimensions for which there's no evidence. Um, they're prepared to believe all that kind of thing. Uh, in fact, to be a, a, a materialist today involves an enormous uh, leap of faith and indeed credulity. I, I, I noticed that uh, I really enjoyed, I think of all, the, of all the stories in this book, I think I enjoyed yours the most, uh, simply because I'm fascinated with the way that a pretty varied diet of spiritual experiences and indeed worldviews kind of led you along the way to where you are now. Um, and I find that fascinating in the context of God and panentheism mm. and uh, trying to understand how the world works and how we fit in it. Um, I'm trying to think kind of biographically where I'd like to go. Um, it's hard to take any piece out. Um, I do know that you yourself uh, have been a, a pretty committed atheist in thought, uh, which I can relate to. Mm. Uh, I'm no longer an atheist, but I do think I'm epistemologically thinking more a materialist than anything else. I have that, uh, as you described, a private subjective experience understanding of God. If I think about it, if I open my heart through mysticism, it's different. But you seem to be more unitive. Uh, so you, you, you've able to not just uh, entertain God as an experience, uh, but, but put, some, put some life on those bones. And through ideas like morphic resonance, uh, understand God as, as a more active component of our cosmology. Um, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that journey was like for you. Uh, what experiences you had, 
and how you are able to start to hold that with perhaps more conviction than I'm able to. I think the key element here is mystical experience. And I've had a, a range of kinds of mystical experience, I mean, in, including spontaneous ones in nature, where I feel this sense that I'm part of something vastly greater than myself. Um, through psychedelics, I first took LSD around 1970, and, and that for me was blasted me out of a kind of the materialist view that my mind's nothing but my brain, it's all explained by regular science. I mean, the experience that I was having went way beyond anything I'd learned in regular science and showed the world consciousness was much bigger and more mysterious than um, the narrow theories uh, within science. Um, and then through meditation and through other spiritual experiences, you know, through art, through music, um, all of these, through love, all of these are uh, giving the sense that there are greater forms of consciousness than our own, that our own consciousness is not the ultimate consciousness in the universe, an otherwise unconscious universe, but that um, we're embedded within many other forms of consciousness, and in a mystical experience, we become aware of them. Um, so spiritual practices in general lead to this sense of connection with something greater than ourselves. And that's the theme of my most recent book, which I'll show you if you haven't seen it. Science and Spiritual Practices, um, in which I discuss seven different spiritual practices, um, all of which can lead to this sense of connection with something greater than ourselves. So my argument here is not based on abstract reasoning. It's based on experience. And I think that all religions start from this direct in, in, in mystical, holistic experience. And the Buddha didn't become enlightened by doing a PhD. He became enlightened through spending years meditating, sitting under trees, and through exploring consciousness from within. And, you know, the Hindu rishis, the, the seers, uh, the sages who gave us the Upanishads, um, spent years meditating in caves in the Himalayas and so on. Um, and that's how they came to their insight, that by going into the, finding out the very basis of our own consciousness, um, by not being distracted by the thoughts that normally run through our minds, through stepping back, getting behind those in meditation, uh, we can contact the ground of consciousness itself, which is none other than the consciousness of God. You know, the Hindu idea that Atman is Brahman, our individual spirit or conscious being is part of the ultimate divine. Um, they're, they're, I found their metaphor very helpful. They, they think in terms of buckets of water um, outdoors and at night reflecting the moon, and in each bucket you see what looks like a separate moon, but actually they're all reflections of the one moon. Um, and so in each of our minds there seems to be a separate consciousness, but they're all reflections of the ultimate one consciousness. Um, so. I see that as a much more rational way of understanding consciousness. Because um, after all, materialism says the whole universe is made of unconscious matter. And um, then it has a big problem explaining why we're conscious at all. In fact, that's called the hard problem in the philosophy of mind, because we ought not to be conscious. And some philosophers of mind 
try to pretend that we actually aren't, unbelievably enough. Um, so materialism doesn't have a good theory of consciousness. It doesn't have any theory of consciousness. So if we want to understand it, we have to explore it from within. And once we go deeper into the nature of the mind through altered states of consciousness and through things that happen spontaneously, like near-death experiences, where people find themselves in a completely different realm of consciousness, um, we have to broaden our picture. And when we do that, we realize our own minds are part of a vastly greater mind. And the Upanishads put it clearly. Um, they say, not that which is seen by the eyes, but that by which the eyes can see, know that to be Brahman, the Lord. Or not that which is known by the mind, but that whereby the mind can know. So the idea is that God, the ultimate being of God, is consciousness, which is what the Judeo-Christian tradition says too. The first revelation of God to Moses by the burning bush, when God Moses says, who are you? He says, I am that I am. It's a statement that I am consciousness in the present. I mean, it couldn't be more basic or, or straightforward. It's the ultimate ground of pres present consciousness that uh, is that's what god's nature is god is not of course uh, a humanoid figure with a beard or anything like god is the ultimate ground of consciousness underlying the whole universe and reflected in every conscious being within it like you and me so <clears throat> if i'm understanding um your approach to this question rupert you're saying that spiritual practices and experiences can function in, in religious inquiry like experiment ought to function in scientific inquiry and that we should take the results of those experiments seriously rather than trying to be reductive about them. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. Just what I'm saying, yes. I, in fact, you see, the word experience in spiritual experience is the key thing. The, the, in science, it's based on experience. The word, Greek word for experience is empiros. Empirical means it based on experience. So science is empirical because it's based on experience. And religious experiences are empirical because they're based on experience. And, you know, when, when you look at the, the basic life of Jesus, for example, um, Jesus' first sense of his connection with God, his deep, intimate connection with God, his father-son relationship with God, came at the moment of his baptism, where John the Baptist immersed him in the River Jordan, and he then came up and had this vision of the Holy Spirit descending upon him, an altered state of consciousness, a sense of divine presence in his life. This was an experience which completely changed him, and, and it was the beginning of his he then went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights on his vision quest. Um, and thereafter, he began his public ministry. But it started with this direct mystical revelation. And I myself, um, as I discuss in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, think that what John the Baptist was doing was uh, creating near-death experiences through drowning. Um, I think he held people under just long enough to induce a near-death experience. And as a result, people, their lives were changed, like people's lives are changed by near-death experiences in medical emergencies. Uh, people who feel themselves going out of their body, entering a realm of peace, joy, and love, and blessing, 
and then coming back, knowing there's something beyond their limited consciousness, a greater realm of consciousness. It's transformative. And uh, baptism by uh, near-death experience through drowning would be, uh, you know, people who line up on the bank of the Jordan. John the Baptist holds them under just long enough. Um, he may have lost a few, but, um, uh, you know, that was before uh, liability litigation. Um, but, you know, I'm sure he was very experienced by the time Jesus came along. And um, it's, he, he then induces this, and people's lives are changed. And, you know, within two or three generations, the early Christians had abandoned this form of baptism. They were baptizing babies by sprinkling water on them, and then it was symbolic. But you know, I don't think John the Baptist was doing something just symbolic. And why do something just symbolic when you can have the real thing? And you don't need to read lots of books about other people's near-death experiences or endless arguments about the nature of consciousness. If you have this experience, you have this experience. You know there's something else uh, beyond this normal um, realm of limited consciousness we're in. And at the Reformation, the most radical Protestant groups were precisely people who reinstated this transformative experience through near-death experience, namely the Anabaptists, who were uh, the most radical of the Protestants, who reinstated baptism by total immersion. They're the ancestors of the present-day Mennonite, Baptist, Amish, and other churches. And it's the characteristic feature of those churches that they talk about dying and being born again and seeing the light. And that's literally what happens if you have a near-death experience through drumming in baptism by total immersion. So I think that that is one example of a spiritual experience that Jesus had. And then we look at uh, these other experiences of Jesus, you know, his visions in the, when he's fasting in the wilderness. Um, he used to spend long periods praying in the hills and uh, alone. And, um, you know, he was clear that Jesus was a mystic. He was not somebody who just sort of studied the biblical texts. He knew the texts, of course, but uh, the, the whole of his ministry depended on going beyond all that. And through this power and connection that he had having this healing presence and, and transforming the lives of those who met him. All that is based on experience. And the whole effect of Jesus on people and, and the early church was based on experience. And the, the after-death sightings of, of Jesus, the, the resurrection appearances, were based on experience, not on theories or studying books. They were based on the experience. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus was based on experience. So I think uh, really um, religions all come out of experience, and I think that all of them include spiritual practices which induce experiences, like singing, which is a very basic spiritual practice. And, you know, most churches I go to have singing as an integral part of um, the service. And, and just by singing with other people, you come into tune with them and you 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 come into a kind of resonance with people you're part of something bigger than yourself if only a group of people singing and because you're singing praises to god and hymns to god and uh, about the holy spirit about jesus about prayer and so forth about thanksgiving uh, you're connecting with something greater than yourself through the song 
so that's a spiritual practice. Um, um, and that's, we take it for granted that it's just part of a church service. It's not about logic, science, reason, words, primarily about words. It's about the direct experience of being immersed in music. And of course, in black churches, uh, this experience is even more intense than in most white churches, and is obviously a major part of why people go to them. <clears throat> so what you're sharing here is really compelling to me. Before you uh, came on this afternoon, Mike and I were sharing a little bit about even how co-hosting this group has impacted us. And how it's impacted me is, you know, hearing from folks like you and Ilya Delio and John Cobb, who are genuinely scientifically literate in a, a way that uh, I, I have not been up to this point in my life, um, challenges some of my, my default materialist assumptions that even though I, as more or less a lifelong believer, have come to think, you know, probably those materialist worldviews are fundamentally correct in a certain way. And I can make peace with that because part of why I'm in a faith expression is because of experience, is because of metaphor. I'm a humanities guy, you know, and sometimes I feel like folks who drop out of faith is because they're trying to be overly concretized, overly literal. So, so I've navigated things in those ways. But, but listening to y'all really challenges me to take experience seriously, take my experiences, my own mystical experiences more seriously, and be willing to draw risky conclusions from them in terms of how I live my life. At the same time, I have an inner skeptic that I think is in dialogue with actual skeptics who say that the metaphor, uh, the analogy of experiments to science and experiments to religion might break down here. That in science, um, experiments that are not repeatable or duplicatable are considered falsified and they're not included in the evidence typically of, of what is a testable hypothesis. But in religion, it's almost the exact opposite, that I could meditate here and experience Christ, and someone can meditate in the Far East and experience Buddha nature, and someone can you know, have a spiritual experience on another place and experience uh, Vishnu. And so that at best, um, the outcome of, um, of religious experimentation and experience is an enriching of our private subjective world. At worst, it causes wars of religion and people saying, absolutizing their experiences and saying, no, my way is the highway. And, and, and on the other hand, what some people consider insufferable are people, perhaps like the three of us, who might be inclined to create a perennial meta-philosophy that explains all of these as phenomenological aspects of the one reality which some folks these days consider to be colonizing by nature and, and disrespecting the particularity of different experiences. So in hearing you, I'm still left with this dilemma of, um, yeah, how, how do I take my experiences um, seriously without falling into those pitfalls? What, what would you say about that? Well, I think, first of all, there's no need to pay such great respect to dogmatic materialism. Um, in my previous book, uh, Science Set Free, which I may have here, um, I've got, the, the English version is called The Science Delusion. The American version is called Science Set Free. Um, what I do is take the ten dogmas of conventional science um, and examine them scientifically using standard scientific skeptical arguments, how do they fit with the evidence? The 10 dogmas, I won't 
know, go through them all, but things like nature is uh, mechanical, um, matter is unconscious, the laws of nature are fixed, total amount of matter and energy is always the same, um, memories are stored in the brain, um, inheritance is mainly through DNA, um, psychic phenomena are illusory, um, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. These are the kind of default assumptions of most educated people because that's the official orthodoxy today. It turns out every single one of these assumptions is flawed and, in fact, deeply unscientific. Um, and for example, the idea of the total amount of matter and energy is always the same, the law of conservation of matter and energy, which most people think must be true. Uh, you know, physicists have invented sort of five times more matter than anyone's ever observed. Uh, call it dark matter, just to make their astronomical equations work. And so whenever it doesn't work, they say, oh, there must be a bit more dark matter, let's add some in. Oh, it's, all, it's perfect now. Well, no one's ever observed dark matter. You, you can just invent as much as you like to make the equations balance. And then they added so much dark matter into the universe that um, it meant there's so much extra gravity that the universe should be slowing down and stop expanding and then begin to contract again. And that's what people thought until about 1999. Then it turned out by observation, the universe, instead of slowing down in its expansion, is speeding up. So they said, OK, well, we can fix that. How? Well, there must be another form of energy, dark energy. So they add in dark energy uh, to make the universe expand. How much dark energy? Well, just the right amount to explain the facts. And if the facts change, you can change the amount of dark energy. We've now got 95% of the universe made of dark energy and dark matter for which there's no independent evidence, um, um, just to make the equations balance. So is the total amount of matter and energy in nature always the same? Well, it's gone up 20-fold in the last 20 years, on paper at least, um, and nobody's sort of got too upset about that. And can these mysterious forms of energy be transformed into regular matter and energy and vice versa? Could regular matter and energy just disappear by turning into dark energy or dark matter? Um, no one knows because no one knows the properties of these things. So, uh, you know, is that a solid assumption? Most people take it. Well, obviously it isn't. Um, at the end of each chapter in that book, I have several questions for materialists that most materialists simply can't answer. And um, they're genuine questions. So, first of all, the idea that the materialist default assumptions are ones that we have to take really seriously and, and, and they, they sort of should cause us to doubt and be sceptical about our own experience is simply not true. If we want to be really sceptical, then we need to be sceptical about these foundational assumptions or dogmas in science itself. That's why my book in America is called Science Set Free, because I think that science will become more scientific, more fun, and a whole new era of scientific discovery will be unleashed when we get beyond the straitjacket of these assumptions. Then when we come to the, um, if we trust our own experience, how come Christians experience Christ nature and Buddhists experience Buddha nature and so forth? Um, well, there's, there's a whole range of experiences that occur within um, the, the, the mystical experience. It's not just one thing. Um, you can have, some people have visions of saints and angels, and those are culturally specific. You know, if you, uh, 
believe in the Blessed Virgin Mary as a major factor in your prayer life, for example, you may have a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But a Hindu may have a vision of, of Kali or of Durga or of a Hindu goddess. Um, um, does that prove that these are nothing but cultural artifacts? I don't think so. I think it shows that there's a kind of archetypal mother or goddess figure that can take on different cultural clothing in different cultures, but there may be some more unitive principle underlying that of a kind of female or goddess or nurturing archetype. And I think that the, um, the idea that there's a, a form of consciousness beyond the human level that links us to the ultimate consciousness is found in Buddhism and Christianity. Um, you know, the Christ nature is uh, a co human consciousness in contact with the divine. Or Buddha consciousness is human consciousness in contact with the ultimate um, state of bliss or joy, nirvana. Um, well, when we get to the idea of this ultimate state, I mean, it, it's clearly any reasonable description of an ultimate consciousness on which the entire universe depends, all human cultures, all forms of life in the universe. It's clear that this ultimate consciousness is going to be a great deal vaster than our own minds. And it's very likely to escape uh, being able to be pinned down in terms of human languages and cultural concepts. Um, so any human reflection of this ultimate reality is going to be limited. And each religion, I think, draws upon an experience of an ultimate consciousness beyond our normal, far beyond our normal experience that has to be experienced directly, but then clothes it in its own cultural forms and languages and traditions and imagery. Um, and so we have different religions, but um, I'm not saying at the end all of them are exactly the same, but I'm saying that they point to realms of experience beyond human conception and language. Um, and human conceptions and languages and religions are always inadequate. Um, and all religions admit this. They all admit that, you know, ultimately God is a mystery beyond our comprehension. I think it's really important uh, in both theology and science to embody a great deal of humility uh, Sir, Sir John Templeton talked about humility in theology as something that has really influenced me. And that's precisely because the human perspective is so limited. I, I, I hear often uh, in theological camps a critique of materialism uh, in things like dark matter and dark energy and the incompleteness of scientific models. Uh, but I think materialism done well, which I, I probably call a weak materialism, it uh, comes out as some form of empiricism or evidentialism uh, where we understand all knowledge to be provisional and we do the best with what we've got. And in that, in that mind, the Newtonian physics was the best model with the data we had, but ultimately was found to be incomplete. Einstein comes along, shows a little bit more. Uh, and, and in that way, sure, dark matter and dark energy uh, could be viewed cynically as, uh, as as a failure to explain or a stopgap to make a, 
a unified theory work that ultimately shouldn't. But if one views those theories as a provisional means of explanation, and you view, as I do and many physicists do, dark matter and dark energy as an upfront admission that there are parts of this model that are incomplete and don't work, and these are things to explore in an ongoing way that we may or may not ever get to the bottom of, to me, that lends strength and credence and credibility to the claims of materialists and doesn't take it down. And so often I also see in the theological realm a critique that science can't yet and may never describe what dark matter and dark energy are, for example, and yet will then speak of the divine, as I do, of an ultimately unexplainable, unknowable, something you can't possibly articulate into words. And I I'm struck over and over that in many ways, the two groups accuse each other of having a problem that they both have. And that's a, an extremely limited capacity to describe the universe, to describe cosmology, to even describe the human experience. Uh, and so I really admire uh, your capacity to build a bridge between your, your physical epistemology and your theological view in a way that I'm not able to. Uh, but I just, it's so important to me. Most of my work, uh, I'm the only person I know whose platform is pretty evenly divided between believers and unbelievers and even atheists and evangelical Christians. Um, I just have such a profound respect for science and indeed materialism's capacity to solve practical problems we face in the reality we can touch and see and feel however much an abstraction that may be, and also uh, for theology and spirituality to awaken something within us that is profound and beautiful and life-giving. Now, whether that is, as I most likely believe, an enriching of something that happens in my brain, or indeed, as you're suggesting and providing evidence for, represents some kind of divine invitation or draw into creativity and unity and beauty, I don't know, and I'm not sure if we will ever know. Uh, but I, I will say I'm very grateful for you illuminating ways that, that those paths which seem to diverge may ultimately converge. Yes, well, thanks for saying that. Uh, I myself think that what you're saying, the strength of science is, you don't need to call it materialism, you could call it empiricism, if you like. I mean, materialism is a specific theory that says the matter is the ultimate reality and, ma and that matter is unconscious. Um, now, that is a completely unnecessary assumption for science. And in fact, the rise of panpsychism, which is now increasingly influential in philosophy of mind and neuroscience, is precisely uh, an attempt to go beyond that assumption. Um, so science can be empirical but without being locked into a materialist ideology. And the reason it got locked into it was a kind of historical accident, really. I mean, Descartes in the 17th century, as you know, separated matter and spirit. Um, matter's unconscious and constitutes all nature. Spirit is conscious, uh, but is outside nature, is immaterial. God, angels, and human minds. So he creates this radical dualism separating God and spirit from nature and spirit from mind from body. Um, 
with the whole of uh, nature as mechanical, unconscious, and, and material. And then in the 19th century, the materialists um, say, well, we don't want two things, spirit and matter, we'll just have matter. Get rid of God and angels at one stroke, so you can get to instant atheism. You're then left with the problem of human consciousness, which is why they have the hard problem. Um, but the thing is, Descartes, in making the assumption matters unconscious, the whole universe is inanimate and mechanical. This was just, it was a clever idea in the 17th century, but he never proved it, he never tested it. And so my problem with um, materialism, you see, is that it's ideological, not empirical. And um, the, the question of whether there's forms of consciousness um, in all nature uh, is an open question. For example, I think the sun is conscious, or may be conscious, it's a self-organizing system. Um, the materialists would say, of course, that's absolute rubbish. You can't even say that. That's nothing. It's totally absurd. The sun's nothing but a nuclear bomb. Um, uh, you know, that's hydrogen bomb giving out energy. It can't possibly be conscious. Well, why not? Most traditional religions have thought so. Surya, the sun god in Hinduism, you know, Apollo in, um, you know, in Christian imagery, it's often an image of Christ and the light of God shining through the sun. Why can't the sun be divine and conscious? Um, well, materialism just closes off that discussion. It just says, out of, you know, against the rules. It's absurd. Uh, now, to me, that then leads on to uh, the question, you see, if the sun is conscious, all the stars could be conscious. And if the stars are conscious, they could be like living cells in the body of the galaxy. The galaxy could be a living organism with a great conscious mind organizing the whole galaxy. And the reason the galaxy is organized the way it is should dep could depend on the fact it's a living organism that's self-organizing. The reason they have dark matter is they can't explain the way galaxies behave um, just in terms of gravitation. So they add in extra gravitation to explain the galaxy. It's like saying... Um, I can't explain why a flock of birds flies together so coherently. Um, so let's add in extra mass in each uh, bird. Uh, imagine they're all surrounded by dark matter that makes the flock hang together. Well, it's hanging together for a different reason than gravity. And so the entire basis of dark matter um, may be completely unnecessary if we think of the universe as alive, organic, and with different levels of organization within it. Um, a panentheistic view. And so I've no problem with materialists saying, well, dark matter's provisional, we don't know the, the exact details of it yet. But normally that's associated with closing down any alternative discussion of the nature of cosmos. They may say, well, we might discover a bit more about it and we'll tinker with the details and stuff. But it may be that the entire basis of the assumption is wrong, and the fact that they've got no evidence for dark matter may be because it's a completely misconceived way of thinking of galaxies. That's why they introduce it to explain the structure of galaxies. Um, so what I'm arguing for, really, is, is much more pluralism in science. You see, what I, the, I think one of the biggest problems with the natural sciences at the moment is the fact that their creation myth, their foundational myth, Galileo and the Inquisition, is the idea that there's, here's this powerful church that says they know all the truth. The scientists come along and say, 
they, 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 they rebel against it and they come up with this different truth and they take over, at least in, in the realm of science. But they, they, scientists have the idea there's one truth and they know it at, at any given time. Whereas no one in religion thinks there's one religion. I mean, as a manifest fact, there's Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Christianity. And within each religion, there's different branches, Orthodox, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, Catholic, etc. Um, so, but in science, there's nothing like that. There's, there isn't this pluralism that we have in every other area of human activity, because it's based on the idea that there's one truth and and at any given time, that's what's known. So I think what we need in science is much more pluralism, like we have in every other area of human activity, so that it should be possible to have a university chair in which you can argue that galaxies are living organisms. Right now, you can't. And you know, when I gave my TED talk, I gave a TEDx talk on my book, Science Set Free, Questioning the Dogmas of Science. The response of some of the most militant materialists in the US was to attack TED, saying that they'd allowed their platform to be used for pseudoscience and told them they should ban this talk immediately, which they foolishly did or tried to. Um, so you see, there's, the, what is, there's an endemic problem within science of intolerance of other points of view. Um, Admitting, they all admit it's not complete, but there's this terrible problem of, of dogmatism that's much, much worse in science than I encounter it in any religious circles I move in. Um, and they've then most people outside science feel they've got to go along with these dogmas because all these scientists seem to agree on them. It must be true and, and stuff. And I think this is really harmful because although they're good at fixing problems, as you say, and, you know, there's an admirable ability to produce better smartphones or more effective washing machines and, and that kind of thing, um, and, and better surgical techniques. Where the whole scientific endeavor falls down most is in, our, in relationships when we look at things holistically. I mean, the relation of humanity as a whole and human economies to the planet Earth is a complete disaster. I mean, we're causing the sixth great extinction. And we set up a system that's actually suicidal, um, not smart at all. And when we look at medicine, which is one of the areas where science has been very successful in some ways, surgery, antibiotics, life extension, um, and so forth, um, we find there are persistent areas of failure. Um, I mean, depression is an endemic problem medically because people feel life has no meaning, purpose, and they feel separated and isolated. That's exactly what the materialist philosophy tells them. I mean, that's the official worldview. And if you take it seriously, you're bound to be depressed. Um, and so um, when we come to the question of how the mind and the body interact, which materialist science can't handle, because um, the mind is considered entirely passive and not doing anything, um, we then have a whole area where the effect of prayer and healing through prayer, it becomes, you know, that's one area. A lot of people who are religious pray, and they pray for people who are sick, and people who are sick pray for themselves. There's people who pray tend to be healthier and happier than those that don't pray. And the scientific answer to that would be say, well, that's just the placebo effect. 
Um, but the fact is, placebo effects are real. And if you have a placebo effect through prayer, it's better than having no placebo effect through no prayer. You're likely to get better with the placebo effect, whereas if you don't have the placebo effect, you're not likely, so likely to get better. So I think there's a whole set of areas here where keeping the scientific and the religious areas separate, saying the well, scientists are great at doing what they're doing, fixing problems, and they're doing their best, and so and religion's about subjective sensations, and we can enhance our lives through it. I think that separation is something that's been that's quite harmful, really. I mean, of course, it leads to um, a division of labour and modus, you know, a modus vivendi of not conflicting too much and stuff. But I think if we're unified beings, if the universe is a unified being, if we live in a panentheistic universe where God is in nature and nature is in God, we can't keep these realms so separate. So if I'm I'm hearing you you know, early on, you said that one of the foundational texts in your scientific life was uh, Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Yeah. For you, um, increasing the amounts of dark matter and dark energy needed to make certain equations work might be the sign that a particular paradigm, while useful for a certain period of time, is now ready to shift. That when things require more and more effort to prop up, that it's time for something new to be birthed. Yes. And I'm I'm wondering, um, and also you said you've experienced more uh, contentiousness and and censorship in the scientific community than the religious community. I just have to say, you don't live in America. You you must be around some really cool uh, religious folks because I think a lot of folks might have the opposite uh, experience. But um, I'm wondering in our closing moments if if you might speak to um, a little bit more to the paradigm shift that you see coming. Uh, specifically for people of faith who want to have an experimental approach to our science and to our spirituality. Maybe I'm asking you um, even for a practice. I know you've written an entire book on practices. <laughs> you just said a minute ago about um, one of the, maybe the shortfallings of modern science and modern religion is that it hasn't helped us live better with our planet. And the panpsychism you speak to um, reminds me of a project that I'm working on with a friend right now called Rewilder, where we're wanting to look at indigenous wisdom of our immediate return forager forebears and their societies and the way that they structured their, their habits of being. And among other things, they did have what we now call an animist worldview, where everything is animated, where there is no dead material. So mm. I'm wondering if there's a, a practice in your book or one that you have otherwise practiced that can help us modern, somewhat disembodied creatures to reconnect with the animated uh, reality of, of our natural world. Well, there are, there are several that I, I, I suggest. I, I think one of them is thinking of the sun as alive. I already mentioned this. If we think of the sun as alive and conscious instead of just uh, an atom bomb and, and it, or a hydrogen bomb, and if we think of the stars as alive then, and possibly intelligent, conscious beings, then when we look at the sky at night with the stars or look at the sun at sunrise or sunset when you can actually look at it without burning your retina, um, giving thanks to the sun for the light and the, the way all our life depends on it, all the whole solar system depends on it. And uh, recognizing that 
the light that shines through the sun is not just physical light, it's the actual light of God. I mean, the light of God is not just metaphor, uh, to realize the actual real light, that the, the, the sun is a real source of divine light, and that God's light shines through all the stars. Um, that's one way to try and reconnect with the sky and the heavens. Another way is to, um, if one's related to, um, if one finds trees powerful, then to find a tree that one can get to know well and sit under at different times of year and, and just feel this being that one can relate to that's bigger than oneself and longer lived than oneself. And um, just sitting in nature in the same spot, having a sit spot, um, um, under a tree, ideally, um, and just being aware of just listening and watching. And 20 minutes or so at a time is good because by within five or 10 minutes, the animals get used to you and carry on their normal, their alarm calls subside and they, they just accept you're there. You can be just absorbed and become present in, in a world that's not the human world and, and feel the connection with it. Um, and one of the practices I think is very important is, is pilgrimage and restoration of pilgrimage. Is, there's a huge revival of pilgrimage going on in Europe at the moment. Um, it's a bit more difficult in North America because the Native American sacred places were not valued by the white settlers. Um, and the, the Native Americans probably wouldn't want thousands of uh, white immigrant type people taking over there, so they're taking over everything else. So they, that, would, that would be tricky. There are, of course, wonderful cathedrals. And when I'm in New York, for example, or San Francisco, I walk to the cathedrals, St. John the Divine or St. Patrick's in New York or Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And there are these wonderful holy buildings, which I find powerful and inspirational. But in America, the thing that has become the main focus, I think, of newness are the, the sacred groves of America. Those places, all societies used to have sacred groves where the spirits of the land could still have a sanctuary. And those have been rebranded national parks in the United States or state parks. And these are like gigantic sacred groves on a scale that's not hardly exists in most other countries. Um, and visiting or walking through or to, uh, well, within uh, these parks in a spirit of pilgrimage to particularly powerful points or places within them is, I think, one of the best ways of restoring the pilgrimage principle in America. And um, it's, it's different from just going on a hike. On a pilgrimage, you go with an intention. You go to make an offering to a place, if any, of singing something or of, uh, offering a prayer. Um, you go with asking to give thanks or to ask for healing or for inspiration. Um, and so I think pilgrimage is actually a wonderful way of expressing the fact we're on a spiritual journey and we're trying, looking for holy places which connect us, uh, that connect the heavens and the earth, as all traditional holy places do. Thank you. I, I love that. Uh, Mike, do you have any any closing thoughts or comments? Uh, just thankfully, you take the time to be with us today. Um, 
it's, it's been an honor and I feel like I've learned a lot and I have a lot to think about. And thank you. And thank you uh, to all of you joining us uh, watching uh, on your computers as well. Um, I, I like having a slower, deeper, more informed conversation than maybe is typical in media. And uh, I hope that this, this time of thought would lead you to a time of reflection that ultimately grows into practice in your life. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and we hope to see uh, as many of you as can come to our Cosmic Campfire Gathering, February 1st and 2nd. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, for joining us here. We, we hope to, uh, to be in touch some more. Thank you. A pleasure being with you.